If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. And my friends, today's episode, Joan Dove is going to be speaking with us about ensuring your insurability. Before I start to even talk to you about this particular topic, let me just share with you, this is the last recording session of the day. You know, we batch record the podcast. We do about five uh, episodes every day that we record. And the last one is always the best. And the reason is I am the rawest and the realest. And so we are going to get me raw and real. And the good news is that probably means that we're going to end up having Joan participating in a really similar way. So these are often our most popular and our best episodes. So stay tuned for this conversation. We're going to be talking about insurance and risk management and how to ensure you're actually able to get insurance. If you watch network TV for even 30 minutes, you will be reminded that we are such a litigious society. You know, 40, 50 years ago, all the commercials you saw were about car wrecks and that kind of thing. And now you see not just car wrecks and trip and falls, were you served by an organization and they did you wrong? You call 1-800-whatever and I am going to represent you. Or, hey, do you think maybe your employer has not paid you for all the hours you're supposed to get? You call 1-800-dot-dot-dot, and I will get you all of the money that you deserve. Literally, we are such a litigious society. And it's interesting because many nonprofit leaders think about insurance as their first line of defense. And this is where Joan comes in. I met Joan while doing an interim engagement and was impressed with her approach as an executive with Arthur J. Gallagher, which is a big brokerage company that, that really helps lots of organizations, for-profit and nonprofit, with insurance. What I was so impressed at is that she doesn't just focus on insurance. She really focuses on managing your organization's risk so that hopefully, A, you'll be able to get insurance, B, you won't pay an arm and a leg for it, and C, if you manage it well, you're never going to need it. And when I had some initial conversations with Joan, and I really learned that this was her philosophy. I thought to myself, yeah, we need to get Joan on the podcast. And so, Joan, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
as I said in the intro, I really appreciate your approach, which is, hey, let, let me help you manage your risk so that maybe while you should have insurance, hopefully you'll never actually have to use that insurance. So what are some of the biggest ways that nonprofits leave themselves exposed? Well, I would say that a lot of nonprofits don't think about the risk they have every day. They may think about it on a global level or now and then, but they're not aware of how impactful every program and activity they conduct on any given day and its impact to the potential for loss and the insurability of it for that organization. Can you say a little more? So an example might be trying to control the uncontrollable. Um, So a lot of nonprofits will think, well, we provide these services to the community. We serve this population and they're very there. They categorize all the different operations that they have, but they're not diving deep into what is the risk evaluation of each of those. So it does take a deep program knowledge with staff and others in the organization to assess that risk and work with their insurance partners to try to understand it and see what could be insured, what could be avoided, or what should be passed on, or how to collaborate with others so that it can all be managed and keep the organization protected from having a claim that could be catastrophic to their organization. So Joan, let's jump in and let's talk about actual case scenarios or examples. And so can you give some examples obviously without naming names, but where programs are maybe producing risk that people are not thinking about. Yes. So one would be organizations that work with children or go on outings and activities. So while they can be a very well-run program on site for the childcare or school or after-school programs they might provide, when they take kids on field trips, they let their guard down And they're not as thoughtful as to why and where they're taking a group of kids somewhere, how they're going to get there, what it's going to be like once they're there, how are they going to deal with behavioral issues once they come up, and what is the site itself like? Is that activity even something that really should be part of the organization's field trip and outing? So that's an example where everybody looks at the risk on site, but not off site. And ratios and staffing that may be appropriate on site may not be off site. So that's an example of having to think things through. And a number of organizations we work with have started to have pre-approved field trips. So that way they've all been vetted, not only where people are going, but how they're getting there, what it's going to look like once they're there, what they're going to do for an emergency plan if something happens. So it's very thought out. So that way individual program directors or staff are not having to just think of it all on their own. So I want us to unpack some of that risk. So in my head, okay, let's use the example of uh, kids going on a field trip. There's risk about how they're getting there, right? You know, is it volunteer drivers? Is it a bus driver? What is it? But there's risk about how they're getting there. And there's risk on site, like they trip and fall, they get hurt, et cetera. But I bet I'm missing some risks. Are there more risks than just those two? Yes. So going to the restroom 
how is that going to happen? How, is there a group going? Are you sending them off to a public restroom on their own? Is a teacher or chaperone going to be with them? The same with an elevator, a staircase. We recently had a case where a child was harmed in the elevator by a patron. But where was the teacher? Where were the rest of the group? So transitions in any location, whether it's a museum, a zoo, a nature reserve, it's all that day, how people are getting from here to there, from the parking lot to the entryway to the area where they're going. So transitions are an area where a a lot of risk can happen and kids can peel off. They're not interested. They disappear. Teacher staff can lose sight of them in the group. And then when they go back to do a head or a name count, somebody's missing. And so walk me through how that organization manages all of that risk in all those transitions. So they think about it ahead of time before they go. They have a little bit of an action plan for this is what's going to, an itinerary for that day. Once we get to the museum, as an example, we're going to drop the kids off in the front. You know, so-and-so staff number one will be at the front. Staff number two will be in the middle. Staff number three at the back. We are all going to walk into the museum as a group. Um, we will meet with the docent or the, the people who will show us around. We are going to designate a person or a chaperone for bathroom breaks. Um, You have to always allow children or people to use a restroom. You can't say, hey, we already did that. You have to wait an hour. You have to deal with it right then and there. But having a plan of who's going to float to help with that and manage it, or if a child or somebody is hurt, who's going to go get help and how, how will the rest of the group proceed? So, It takes just a little bit of planning. We don't want people driven to distraction about it, but it really prepares everybody for the day. And I think staff feels really comfortable with the event as well. And so what would you say to the person who heard you explain all of that and just said to you, "Eh, we have have all the parents sign a release. I don't worry about it. All the parents have signed a release. I don't care. What do you say to that person? Parental releases are of limited value in many activities involving children. They can be very valuable for certain activities like athletic sports, where a parent knows and understands the risk that their child is encountering, but children cannot sign waivers. So generally the rights of children remain intact, even though the parent has signed a parental release. So the children would always have a potentially a legal action when they turn 18 or um, perhaps even at that moment, if they are hurt, the, the child's rights will not be absolved by the waiver. You know, and I had a feeling that's what you were going to say. And, and Joan, you're seeing me smile. I just I know that some people are thinking that right now. So I'm like, let me just throw that question out there. And I, I would also bet, I mean, especially with vulnerable populations, children, older adults, um, maybe people with developmental disabilities, et cetera. Getting getting that release signed also does not prevent like criminal prosecution. So, you know, child negligence is still child negligence. If a kid, you know, if a kid's arm got caught in the elevator and it was broken, that's still child negligence. Yes, that's a really good point, Dolph, that you brought up that our legal system has two components, civil actions, which are negligence, trips and falls, um, injuries and, and bodily injury and that kind of thing. And then criminal actions, which is child endangerment, neglect of a child or a vulnerable adult or a person. So that's a different track. So some components and what we're seeing in the newspaper right now with abuse and molestation allegations across the U.S. are the elements of both, both criminal actions on the perpetrator as well as civil actions against the organizations. And so 
one of the things I'd like to ask, because I, I know this would be really helpful for our friends who are listening. When you first started advising an organization, what are some of the most significant areas of risk? So like, you know, obviously we've talked about field trips and programs and other things in programs, but are there certain like buckets of exposure that organizations need to be thinking about? Autos. Transportation is one of the most dangerous risks any organization faces any day on any day because of the severity of an auto accident. You can seriously injure or harm a number of people. So if you're operating a passenger van or a bus, you literally could injure or harm, you know, anywhere from seven to 60 passengers or more in a bus. So transportation is one of the riskiest components of any nonprofit organization. If I can just jump in, I, I remember being surprised a few years ago as the interim organization. And we, our insurance company required that we provided the name and driver's license information of all volunteers and staff members who were driving as part of their, their regularly assigned work. And we actually ended up getting a message back from the insurance company saying, oh, this staff member is never allowed to drive for anything related to your organization ever. And I remember going, wow, okay, I guess, I guess, yeah, the insurance company's taking that pretty seriously. But looking back on that, we probably had the burden of knowing that before the insurance company told us. We probably had the burden of knowing, oh, eh, this person shouldn't be driving for work. Yes, you have a duty to know. It's not what you didn't know, it's what you should have known. So that's what's really important with uh, auto accidents. It's called negligent entrustment of an auto. The organization put the public at risk by not knowing the driving record of the driver who was driving on their behalf, whether it was their own car or the organization's vehicle. And so Joan, I'm gonna ask you another one of those pushback questions. Uh, what if someone said to you, oh, yeah, well, don't worry that they're not driving an agency van. They're just driving their own car. They're just doing it, you know, to go from from one entity to another. What would you say? That the organization is vicariously liable for the actions of any volunteer staff driving on their behalf. So in the United States, insurance follows the vehicle. So the person's own auto insurance would be exposed first. And then the organizations would come in as excess for uh, a liability claim alleging negligence on the part of the organization and that driver. So the organization's insurance is at risk. Right. And I will say in some states, the minimum required insurance for individual drivers is ridiculously low. In my state, it's like $25,000. So I'm like, you could total somebody's Toyota Camry and their insurance would not even cover the car, much less like harm to human beings that were in the car. Exactly. So that's why it's very common now for underwriters of nonprofit auto insurance to ask about the protocols in place for screening volunteers and employees driving their own cars on the company's behalf. So so we've talked about autos. Sorry, I interrupted you just in the A's. So 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 let's oh, move the for, A's. Yeah, so let's move further <laughs> down the alphabet. Okay, we well, I have more A's. We have aquatics. So anytime you're taking people swimming or you have a swimming pool, a body of water, a lake, a creek, we know a lot of organizations you work with or nonprofits who may be listening, it might be located by a pretty creek or a pond. I have worked with some senior facilities that had a beautiful pond. They actually had one of their residents walk in the middle of the night and get lost and drown in the pond. So bodies of water are dangerous. They should be fed. And there should be a concern about 
how that's managed and protected. And then anybody who has a swimming pool, anybody who's in residential facilities with pools, they should be guarded. If they're not guarded, there's some issues with that. Certain states do not necessarily allow you to say swim at your own risk. Mm -hmm. So that's something to look at. But aquatics is a catastrophic loss. You generally don't have a small claim with an aquatics injury. It's it's a fatality. It's a drowning or brain injury. So um, aquatics would be something that is, is a big concern. Uh, the other part, not going down through the alphabet golf, but another A would be potentially aging seniors, as we call it. We worry a lot about kids getting hurt, but seniors get hurt too, and it's harder to put them back together. Kids heal pretty quickly and their injuries can be resolved, but a person, a senior who is hurt in a program they might not ever recover. And so the medical bills and all can be very substantial that the organization could be held responsible for. Okay, so so in the A's, we've got auto, aquatics, and aging. Are we ready to go to another letter of the alphabet? <laughs> Let's see, what else could we... I, um, real quick, I almost feel like we're paying insurance bingo here. Okay. <laughs> We could uh, do sports, athletics. I'm sure a lot of your nonprofits have a component. I mean, they, they may not be sports-related organizations, but they might have picnics or activities where people are playing volleyball or some kind of, you know, soccer or any kind of sport has some element of risk. And a lot of it's manageable, but the, the key there is um, to just make it known, you know, we're going to use the right equipment. We're going to play the game as it's intended. So an example would be even something like tug of war. We've had claims where the organization did not use the right type of rope and then it snapped and then people fell in piles where the rope snapped and one gal had a ring on it. It sliced underneath her chin and severed a nerve there. So that was a really serious injury from the teacher, the instructor who led that game, not using the right kind of rope for a tug of war. So anything with sports or all, you have to use the right equipment, the right padding, all the safety uh, things that you should, knee pads, wrist pads, elbow pads, helmets. Um, so those things are important. So sports and athletics can lead to some serious injuries. I know I was hoping we would also talk some about the big D when it comes to insurance, directors and officers insurance. So I don't want to steal your thunder. And I know the vast majority of our friends know what director and officers insurance is, but let's just take 60 to 90 seconds and make sure everybody knows what it is. Okay. Directors and officers liability is for mismanagement of the organization at a, a global level. The, the directors and officers mismanage the the organization in a number of ways, either financially in terms of governance in the operations. Um, an example could be where a contractor on the board is, I don't want to say rigging, but b steering business mm -hmm. to build a building or do construction work for that organization. And they would win the deal and they, not to say they wouldn't do a good job for the organization, but it need, it's a conflict of interest. So helping um, different board members manage the conflict of interest where they're a step away in an arm's distance relationship is really important. 
the way I've always thought about DNO is if someone sues the board, you know, so someone says, for example, you board failed to do your fiduciary duty. And so consequently, whatever immunity our state provides you, we're going to pierce and we're going to sue you individually. That's when DNO comes in, whether regardless of what it is, whether, you know, whether it's breaking a law or just mismanagement of money or, you know, just board management of money. Like, you know, if, if a constituent sues the board, that's what your DNO insurance is for. Yes. I mean, most state immunity is very narrow for how it would protect a, a volunteer or a board member. It's it's really important that all organizations have directors and officers liability. And one of the biggest reasons is for defense. Yes. So that if you get into a jam, there's somebody to defend you and you may be absolved of any settlement or damages, but you need defense. And that can often be more expensive than the settlement. And can you say a little bit about why why that is that you need it for defense? Just be, make it crystal clear. Because when a lawsuit or summons comes in, it needs an immediate response and you can't do it yourself. You need legal counsel. So you would have to engage the services of an attorney right off the bat. Right, right. Typically what I see is, you know, someone takes that summons and they just send it to their insurer and their insurer says, whoa, okay, we're going to go get attorneys for you. We're going to get attorneys that specialize in this specific type of an issue. You know, we we call them insurance defense attorneys, but we're going to go get that attorney. We're going to find them. We're going to hire them. We're going to pay them. You're just responsible for your, what they call retention or deductible. You're just responsible for your deductible. And that's one of the things that I think is so important then about DNO insurance, right? Is like, like then instead of you now, you got the summons, you have to respond and you have to figure out the right attorney. And oh, you know, you have board members going, oh, my, you know, my brother Ned is a, is a real estate attorney, and you know, you know, my sister Jill, she does, you know, she does wills. That that's not the kind of attorney you want. So instead, the insurance company they get serious about it. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and and so I just I really want to make sure we drove that point home before we talked about EPL, but also before we talk about EPL. What are your thoughts on like the minimum amount that a nonprofit should have in in director and officers insurance? I would say a minimum of a million dollars and potentially five million. A number of organizations we work with that are much larger, maybe 50 million in revenue budget size, have 10 million or more. But DNO is, has become very, very costly, even for nonprofits. But I would say most nonprofits should have between one to five million in terms of DNO. Yeah, and 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 it's funny. Like I, I know you say one million is the floor. Where where I would push back is in this day and age. You know, a million dollars isn't what it used to be. By the time you're talking four or five hundred thousand dollars in legal fees, um, you know, and then you know another four or five six hundred thousand dollars in a settlement or worse than that. Like it's easy to blow through a million dollars in, in attorney's fees, judgment, settlement, et cetera. Like a million bucks, not what it, you know, I know we think of like, oh my gosh, look at all the zeros after that. No, not enough. Correct. Yeah. Like I, I will say more and more I see among so many organizations, like almost no one even asked for a quote of a million now, almost all are saying like 2 million. And I'm starting to scratch my head a little bit and, and starting to think, huh, is two, is two million actually enough? Because two million is not what it used to be either. Yeah, it depends. Some nonprofit policies on DNO are still out there where defense is in addition to the limit. Hmm. So that's something to ask your broker. Um, there are certain programs that still allow that, which is a great feature. But many have moved to combining defense with the limit. So that is a consideration in how much you should purchase. And and I've also seen some insurers now that 
that essentially say, you know, this is your aggregate limit for the entire year. So, you know, so for your 12-month policy, it's a million or it's two million. And that makes me even more nervous because, you know, that might be enough for one, but it's not enough for two. Right. So we, what happens if your aggregate is exhausted is you have to go back and buy more insurance. So you're basically having to pay it all over again yeah. if you can even buy it. And that's what I was going to say at that point. When you have to go out to the market and say, oh, we've exhausted our aggregate, we need more insurance, that's going to be some expensive insurance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you okay. don't want to be there. Right. Okay. So so now let's talk about employment practice liability insurance, which like you, I think every organization needs it. And I am always shocked at the number of organizations. And oftentimes, you know, for whatever reason, we'll end up seeing an insurance certificate and I'll be like, mm, you should talk to your broker. Make sure you have EPL on this. You should just have a conversation. So let's talk about EPL. Yes. Employment practices liability is probably the most litigated component of a DNO management liability package right now. So this covers allegations of discrimination, harassment, wrongful termination, hostile work environment, a lot of different areas, which are all part of the workplace. And after COVID, we have seen a lot of an increase in these claims for one or one reason or another. And part of it is that if people were laid off or furloughed, some were brought back, some weren't. So there's a lot of hurt feelings and people who feel maligned over how the organization handled that reopening process. The other area to check on with your employment practices is third-party discrimination. So that would be discrimination for clients or people you choose to serve or not serve and people coming back saying you discriminated against so-and-so, you didn't take my child into this program, you didn't accept my loved one into your care for this reason or not, you're doing it because you're discriminatory. So I have seen a number of cases where somebody has an employment practices policy, but it does not also cover third-party discrimination, which would also be American with Disabilities Act offenses as well. So you would want to make sure you talk to your insurance expert about including that. And I will say, in my experience, it's not automatically in your DNO insurance. These are third-party practices or EPLs, not automatically there. And you kind of have to, if your broker does not ask you about it, you have to make sure you ask about it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've also worked with some organizations and they end, you know, by the time I get there, they've they've learned by a surprise that they don't have EPL insurance. It's always a shock for the board because, you know, the first thing the board says is, oh, we're insured. Good. You know, contact the insurer, let them know. And then the insurer has to say, we're really sorry, but you're not insured for this. Dolph, I think the mistake some nonprofits or their broker makes is the broker worries about the cost that I, this is a nonprofit you know, we know they're very sensitive to money. And so they sometimes cut corners, not out of, you know, negligence or just being remiss. They're just concerned about the nonprofit may not be able to afford what they're talking about or presenting. So I think it's really important in conversations with the broker to say, tell us what we need and we'll decide what we can afford or not afford or what we're interested or not interested in, because you don't want to miss out on an important coverage because the broker made the assumption you wouldn't buy it, you wouldn't be interested, and they didn't want to make you feel bad that you're declining certain coverages, but you need to be very proactive and transparent about that. Absolutely. And uh, the other thing I know that you work with a lot of your clients on is making sure not just that they have policies and procedures, but they're using those policies and procedures. Yes. So 
every organization has your standard operating procedures, but you also need them as they pertain to insurance-related risk management things such as your employees, your safety programs, your safety initiatives. Many of um, Dolph, your nonprofits who are listening, have uh, compliance with OSHA in different states. Some maybe not, but many do. There's also a number of county safety requirements and ordinances for employees. So all those need compliance with. It all needs to be written down and people need to be trained on that. And, the, and just in general, what hurts an organization is if they have some procedures, but they haven't been refreshed for a number of years. They're outdated. Nobody follows them. They There's no further, nobody trains on them anymore. And so when something goes wrong, people will say, well, where's your procedure on that? Well, we had one from 1999. <laughs> okay. It hadn't been, it hasn't been updated since then, or when's the last time you trained on that? Oh, we don't train on that anymore. So it basically renders it useless. And if anything, works against the organization that you you needed it you should have had it and this possibly could have this injury could have been prevented if you had that in place yeah i will say i once had an insurance broker say to me the only word the only thing worse than not having a policy is having a policy that you don't follow because then when your organization goes to court the opposing attorney is going to pull that policy out and be like isn't this your policy yeah. Oh, you didn't follow it. I actually did. I once had a, a broker say that to him. It's like, the only worst thing is a policy you don't follow. Yes, exactly. Well, Joan, as we wrap up our discussion, I have one final question for you. We call it the off-the-map question. It's normally completely unrelated to what we're talking about today, but this one is partially related. So you have been in the insurance world for a minute, and I would be really curious to know what you've learned about human beings through your work in insurance. Oh, that's a good question. I I would say that most people want to do the right thing. They just run out of time and they don't know what they don't know so that it's hard for them to create that procedure or get management or their supervisor or people around them to understand. But I, I think we try to really encourage people, don't suffer in silence, speak up. If you see something, say something, do something. And I would say most people have good intentions and they want to prevent that bad thing from happening, but they just can't quite get there to do that. And that's that's a miss, you know, we, that's an unfortunate situation. So I would say we just encourage people to make things better. Just keep trying. Don't accept it for what it is. And if you see something that needs to be changed, make that change. Thank you, Joan. And Joan, I'm so grateful you came on today. I, I would be remiss if I did not share with listeners the, your URL and how they can reach out to you. So you're at AJG, which of course stands for Arthur J. Gallagher, AJG. Dot com. And we're also going to, with your permission, put your work email address in the show notes so that people can reach out to you. I also just have to make sure that my friends who are listening are aware that Joan serves nonprofits all over the country, from Washington, D.C. to California to Florida, literally all over the country. So if your organization is looking for a broker and a broker that's not just trying to sell you insurance, but really one that's trying to help you manage your risk better, I would encourage you to reach out to Joan. Hey, Joan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. 
Oh, it's been fun. Thank you, everybody. And good luck out there. All right, my friends, you know your support means everything to me. So please take a moment to show your support by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing our podcast with your social media followers. In doing so, you will join the thousands of friends who have already subscribed, rated, or in some way helped us promote this podcast. Additionally, if this is an episode that really got you thinking about insurance and your organization's risk, there are two others that I think you should consider listening to. One is episode 195, How to Prevent a Data Breach at Your Nonprofit with Spencer Pollock. Joan and I did not talk about cyber liability insurance, but gosh, if we had had time, we would have. And so if you want to know more about cyber liability, you should download episode 195. And by the way, it will make you want to go get cyber liability insurance. Also, I'd like for you to consider episode 180, Creating a Strong Back Office with Sean Hale. Because, you know, if you can't manage to get the check out to your insurer, you're not going to have insurance for very long. So you've always got to make sure you've got that strong back office. That's episode 180 with Sean Hale. My friends, that is our episode for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive. And, you know, the lawyers make me manage my own risk, and they always make me give a disclaimer. And honestly, I'm kind of tired of doing the disclaimer. We're, we're somewhere near 300 episodes now, and I feel like I've done this disclaimer a lot. I actually know it by heart. And so I started to throw it into chat GPT immediately before I start recording. And I'm like, oh, give the disclaimer to me this way or that way. So this time around, I asked chat GPT to give me the disclaimer in a snarky version. So here is ChatGPT's snarky version. Welcome to the disclaimer corner where I will make one thing clear. I am not your accountant. I am not your lawyer. I am not your tax person. I know, I know, I'm charming, witty, and smart, but don't let that fool you. When it comes to taxes and the law, I am about as useful as a chocolate teapot. Friends, I love that phrase useful as a chocolate teapot. Go find yourself someone with a legal or accounting degree and a license. Make sure they have expertise in the area you need counsel in and get the advice you need.